Hello, my name is Christopher Dring. And I'm Matt Jarvis. And you are listening to the MCV and Develop podcast. Uh, this week we are talking, well, we're connecting this week's podcast to Interface, which is our indie-focused developer event that takes place on Thursday, May 5th. The event is about connecting indie developers with potential publishers primarily, but we also have a conference running alongside it, and it's free to attend for small studios. Uh, we've got some speakers, great speakers to be honest, including uh, Debbie Bestwick from Team 17. We've got Mike Biffle, Charles Cecil's going to be talking about Kickstarter as our Platonic. Yuki are talking about tax breaks. Um, but one, and our guest this week, is connected to this. We have a Q&A with Dan Pinchbeck, um, the man behind the BAFTA award-winning studio at the Chinese Room. Hello, Dan. Hello there. Uh, and well, congratulations on all your awards lately. Thank you very much. Yes, yeah, it's, it's been quite a quite a good few months, really. Got a very happy team over there. Uh, must, how, how many BAFTAs was it? Was it three? Uh, three BAFTAs. Yeah, we nominated for ten, which was in itself. We kind of it was weird because we went to the night going, listen, even if we don't win a single BAFTA, we'd be nominated for ten of them, and the only other studio in the world to be nominated for ten BAFTAs is Naughty Dog. So um, yeah, we kind of went in without any expectations and came away with three, which was absolutely amazing. So. Yeah, really, really chuffed. And, you know, so many people worked really, really hard on, on everybody's gone to the rapture. There's an awful lot of heart and soul went into that. Um, so I feel very, very pleased with the team and everyone that, that, that put stuff into it. They were, you know, kind of felt like they got uh, got recognised for the work they'd done. So, yeah, it was really good. And it was arguably, it was a super strong year for indies. Obviously, it was a strong year overall, you know, in the AAA space. We had stuff like The Witcher, obviously, cleaning up pretty much everywhere. But indies, obviously, there was, everybody's gone to The Rapture. You had Her Story from um, Sam Barlow. You know, we had some really inventive stuff and stuff that you wouldn't necessarily think of as typical indie fare. I think a lot of people were surprised by, obviously, Her Story's use of FMV. Everybody's gone to The Rapture, sort of avoidance of combat mechanics and stuff like that. What were your thoughts on sort of the other indies that are around and what that means overall for how people are approaching indies now? Well, it's really interesting because, like, when we released um, Esther a few years ago and we were up for a, a couple of BAFTAs and didn't come away with any on that year, but we got a few nominations and we went to the awards. It was a, the, the year that Journey cleaned up. And everyone was saying, this is the year of the indies, this is the year of the indies, the indies have done really well. And we came away from going, yeah, it kind of was a year when indies got nominated, but they, they didn't actually really win apart from Journey. But this year it felt that it was, um, you know, the big winners on the night were really different, really inventive games. You had, you know, you had Rapture, you had Hurst, or we also had Rocket League. I mean, we were all rooting for Rocket League to walk away with best games, to be honest with you. Um, but it was amazing that it really was a kind of a celebration of the diversity of where games are now. And it didn't feel like it was just everyone raves about sort of innovation and experimentation. But when it comes down to rewards, it kind of tends to go back to quite traditional games, it really felt like it was um, a really amazing statement of sort of like, look, there's all this incredible sort of like breadth of games which are out there, um, and they're, you know, they're really, really fantastic. And I think the great thing about the reason why BAFTA counts so much for developers is that you know that you've got probably one of the most rigorous jurying processes of, of any game awards. It's really, really tough. And the people that are sitting on those jurying panels are they're the field leaders, you know, they are the people that if anyone's going to say your game is good, they're the people who want to say your game is good. So it was a really, I think, really kind of powerful message to be sent out about why experimentation and innovation and creativity and what small teams can bring to the table in terms of pushing gaming forwards um, 
that message really came out loud and clear, I think. And it was a, that's a, a really good thing for us as an industry. It's particularly with small teams, you know, kind of like early career and young developers are saying, you know, it's entirely possible for you to come out there and, and just to follow your passion and to make what you want to make. And it'll work. It will get recognised. It's interesting as well. Everybody's gone to the Raptors. Obviously, it's a, a game, but it's so unlike so many games, as you say. There's, you know, all this experimentation and innovation going on. For you personally, what, where do you take your inspiration from? Is it films? Do you look at books? Is it games? How do you come up with these brilliant ideas? Well, I mean, I'm quite a sort of creative director. I'm, I'm quite booky, so there's, there's, there's bookcases full of, full of novels and books at the office. Um, and I think a lot of inspiration comes from what I'm reading. So, so with Rapture, it was definitely sort of like inspired by people like John Wyndham, Christopher Priest, that sort of like British science fiction we really wanted to make. To look at a game which was inspired by British post-apocalyptic kind of like fiction and apocalyptic fiction as opposed to kind of more sort of global American one. It felt like it would be a really interesting different game from that. But we're also, I think, we're quite holistic as a team. So, you know, I'll sort of have an idea and then Jess and I'll talk about it a lot and Jess brings an awful lot of, um, I think, the, the very sort of unique feel of our games comes from the way in which she approaches them and, and her focus on Things like uh, the kind of like the emotional tone of the game, particularly she sort of says, you know, she's she's interested in in people as emotional beings and kind of like the kind of landscapes which that creates is what she's really looking at. Like, why should I care about this? What's in here to make people care about what's going on? Um, but then once we talked about it, then it kind of goes out to the team, and we, we we you know we're lucky that because there's not that many of us, we can talk really openly. We can still all sit around a table and just thrash around ideas and say, what out of these appeal to people, what's the game that, that we want to make together? And Rapture really, particularly the early part of developing Rapture, that's why I was so kind of amazing working on it, because Jess and, and Andrew Crawshaw, who's our lead designer, and I worked on a, a prototype for a few months before it went across the Sony. And then really the first six months was us as a team going, well, what do we want to make here? What's the thing that's making us excited? What's the thing that we're going to feel happy to pump three years of our life into? And I think it's really important for us as a studio to think in those terms that we don't want to make something that that you know we don't really really want to make um but there's a, a line at the end of the movie um the sheltering sky where um right in the very end of the film the voiceover goes you sort of look at the moon and think how many more times am i going to see the moon in my life how many more times am i going to look at the ocean and you kind of go how many more games am i going to make and given the games take a few years to make each one yeah, if, I'm only, if I'm going to make another sort of like, you know, 10, 12 games in my career, I want them to be games that I want to make. But I also want to make them with people that I like, and I want us as a team to really feel passionate about what we're making. So I think there's a lot of that sort of communication and discussion goes into what we actually end up making. Um, so you've got this, this sort of like starting points of inspiration, and like with this, the stuff we're looking at at the moment, there's kind of clear starting points of inspiration from that, but what actually really ends up making the game is the discussion that we have as a basically a bunch of people who enjoy making stuff together. Well, yeah. it sold really well as well. I mean, that's the I mean that's the thing that I think surprised me in some ways because I mean the game is it looks incredible. I think that's perhaps helped it. But when I looked at the because obviously we did a story back in August where um, we, it would have been the number one selling game in the UK the week it was released. Yeah, um, which is you know incredible uh, for any game. So I mean. Did that did that surprise you? Do you need to do you want to see that sort of information out there? That sort of to be able yeah, to absolutely. Channel it I think it's really really important. I mean, I think it's it's hard, particularly with you know with with, 
with, with consoles, it's often very hard to get those kind of figures. Um, and obviously, as a developer, you're under contract to publisher where you're not allowed to talk about that kind of stuff. And mm -hmm. um, well, I mean, as a developer, you're under a contract to publish where you're not allowed to talk about anything good or bad. And that's, you know, I think particularly with our kind of like documented problems with Sony, that's something that we have to be a little bit cautious of because, yeah. you know, there's a lot of stuff we'd really like to talk about and we feel people should know about. Um, but obviously, we can't. The, um, I think stuff like the, the, the sales of Rapture was really, it, it was. You, you never kind of assume that you're going to sell or that people are going to like it. You just make the best game you can. And if people like it in itself, that's, that's fantastic. And it was really amazing to see it being the top-selling game in, 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 in you know, that, that time. And I think, for me, the, the great thing about it is, is that you, you know, you've got a team of people that have worked really, really hard and have put like, you know, blood, sweat and tears into it. And it's really nice for them to go, yeah, people understood what you were trying to say with this and they really got it. And that so many people really got it mm -hmm. meant a lot um, because we really cared about it. Um, but it also is a really, again, it's a really important sort of statement to be making of going, particularly in terms of UK development in the last 12 months where there's been you know, a lot of high-profile studio closures. There's a hell of a lot of really talented people making amazing work in this country. And the more we celebrate that and draw attention to that, the better. Um, so yeah, it was good. It was great to be part of a you know in a year that, that was a bit up and down for the UK industry to to kind of be one of the success stories. Just to be able to say you know this is this is as good as British development can be. It's interesting you mentioned your problems with uh, Sony. Obviously, you announced that your next title you'll you'll sort of go it alone and drop all publishers. You know, also the the kinds of games you're making there, although everybody's gone to the Rapture was massively successful and you know rightly so. They're not. As you say, the standard fare that people were interested in, you know, I d don't think it's unreasonable to say you'd perhaps never expect to sell like a million copies or something like that. So, have you ever considered things like Kickstarter? What are your views on those things? How, you know, you say you want to make all these games before, before you die, but what, if, what yeah. if the studio dies first, I suppose? What if people, you know, lose interest in these artsy-fartsy games, as some people might call them? Well, I mean, I think we're not, even though we're making Total Dark without our publisher, we're not, we're still talking to quite a lot of publishers. We've still got a couple of conversations in the works, and we're not against publishers at all. Um, I think one bad relationship shouldn't colour the entire process of it, and I still think there are amazing partnerships to be had, and, you know, the industry's full of amazing partnerships between developers and publishers, so, you know, we're in conversation with a couple of people at the moment. Um, and so far, I think there's some very positive stuff to come out of it. I think we wanted with Total Dark to... To just make something that was just ours, you know, to do something that's a bit smaller, kind of like we we pumped so much into Rapture to kind of go, look, let's just make it, let's make a game here that's just just about us going. We've just got this idea, let's just make it, and it'll be different for us to do that in a sort of self-funded way. And then hopefully as well, you know, with self-funded stuff, the reality is is that a self-funded game that works, you're going to do much better financially from than a publisher-funded game which works. You have to do so well with a publisher-funded game before you make the kind of money you can make with a decent selling self-funded game. So it's a much bigger risk, but obviously, you know, it's the usual thing. If, a, if, a, if you're spending someone else's money, they're going to want to make sure that they um, their return on, on investment is good, that they're protected from that. If it's your own money you're spending, you get all the rewards if it works. But it's also kind of a way of just going, let's just do something a bit different. Let's try something new as a studio. We haven't self-funded a major title before. Um, and you kind of always want to keep moving forwards. But we are still, you know, like, so we get, we've got very good relationships with, with a lot of other publishers that we've been speaking to. And hopefully, 
you know, told I won't be the only game to be making the next sort of 12 months. Um, as far as sort of the studio sustainability and things like that go, I think I've done a lot of bad jobs in my life. Jess and I were both artists for um, quite a long time before Essie came out. We, you know, we were skinned. We had no money at all. We kept doing it because we loved what we were doing. And we're really lucky and fortunate that we've done well as a studio. We've been, you know, we've made good games, but I'm also really aware that particularly Esther was in the right place at the right time. Um, and we're very fortunate that we've done well and that we are in a place where we're really sustainable and we are, you know, in, in a decent position financially. We've also been smart. We haven't kind of got sucked up in the enthusiasm of growth and gone, we could be 50 people, we could be the way we work, we don't want to do that. I don't like the idea that I don't talk every day with people that I'm working on a game with. But at the same time, you also kind of know that you're only as good as the game which you're currently putting out there. And it doesn't, you know, you can probably survive one bad title, but you're not going to survive two. And it's about making sure that what you're putting out is really, really good. And I think the best way of doing that is to make sure that what you're putting out is, is something you really feel passionate about as a team. We'll keep making games for as long as we can. Um, and hopefully that'll be, you know, the, the studio will have a long career. But you don't, you don't ever think you're owed it. You just do the best you can, put it out there and, and hope that people like it. I think what's really important to me as a sort of studio director is it's, it's, we've always said it's not just the games we make, it's how we make them. And I think if we were ever in a position where we thought we're having to make compromises to our working conditions or we're having to pay people badly or put them on the wrong contracts or we're having to be dishonest with our team or we're placing undue amount of pressure on them or frankly we just don't, we're just not enjoying it anymore, then we'll stop. I don't see any position, any sort of reason to be going we're miserable as hell and our working conditions are deteriorating and we're sort of just making stuff just to keep the lights on. Well, there's, you know, there's, there's better things to do with your life than that. What do you think of the idea of the... Um, I mean, obviously, you guys have been around for a while now. You've had... If any, I mean, you've worked on games before the death uh, 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 and, um, and everybody's gone to the rapture, but those last two titles particularly put you on the map. For somebody that's sort of coming in now, for a group of people that just went, right, we're going to launch... Is, is it... Is it, is it is it actually possible at the moment? The the indie indie apocalypse is the word that people like to use, or indie apocalypse. Uh, what do you, how do you think you'd find it if you weren't, you know, Dan Pinchbeck from the Chinese room? Do you, would you not be? Would it, would it be possible? Uh, I don't believe in the indie apocalypse, but I do think we're in a bit of an ice age. Um, I think it's really hard at the moment. I think steam is bloated. Um, I think the lack of. I think my only criticism of Valve would be that I think they've shucks their responsibility for curatorial control on, on Steam, and that's really difficult. Um, I think you're competing with ideas rather than fully functioning games a lot of the time, which is really tough. Um, so I think Steam is hard. And that's always been, Steam's always been the thing is if you can get it onto Steam, it was always really hard to get onto Steam, but if you get it on Steam, you'd be all right. Um, the mobile market, I mean, yeah, I don't know. The mobile market terrifies me. Um, we haven't really worked in it but in terms of just the blow it's just terrifying and I think unless you've got a relationship with the distributors that's going to more or less guarantee you exposure on those stores whether that's Steam or whether that's the App Store or whatever it is I think it is possible to sink without trace almost it's almost a guarantee unless you have those relationships so I think what my kind of like core piece of advice, aside from make a really good game, um, 
is that you've got to be developing those kind of relationships with the people that are going to help you get your games some visibility. And don't take for, you know, I think it's really, really important, um, don't take for granted that um, even with that, your game's going to do well. You have to go into it kind of expecting your game to tank and to be able to survive that if you want to make a second game. Um, I think there's a, you know, the hardest thing to, to get past is that sort of like naivety. And you kind of want people to be idealistic and naive when they start making games because that's why they make really great kind of passionate games. But at the same time, it's a hard time to be an independent, a really hard time at the moment. Um, and depending on what mood I'm in, <laughs> I mean, if I'm in a really good mood, I go, yeah, it's really, really important that, um, you know, people are have their eyes open going into this and that they understand it is really hard at the moment and it's going to be hard probably for another sort of like 18, even 24 months and even established studios like us are going, okay, this is this is a little bit of a scary time to be going to market. Um, if I'm in a bad mood, I kind of go, there's probably a healthy Darwinian process happening where an awful lot of those startups are going to go out of business and the ones that are able to survive as businesses and that are smart will stay and will survive, but a lot of the speculative, hey, we'll just make a game because how hard can it be, indie kind of rock star myth stuff will die, and that's probably not a bad thing because it'll thin the market down a little bit again. But I'm also aware that's a really awful thing to say at the same time because that's, you know, that's people's kind of houses and kids' college funds and stuff like that that you're talking about. Um, but there's no question that there has to be some kind of crunch back. And I think there is a question about whether the, there has to be any change to the distribution models because currently the, the distribu distribution platforms work extremely well for the distributors, but increasingly they are horrendous for small-scale developers. Um, and at some point, there's going to be a breaking point where small-scale developers go, I'm just not going to bother with it because the chances are I'll tank. Um, and whether that means... Those kind of like small-scale publishers who've traditionally been struggling a lot at the moment with, with sort of digital title visibility become they sort of start to come up again in um, in their value because they can offer um, a degree of visibility to, to, to small studios. I'm not entirely sure where that's going to go, and then you throw VR into the middle of it, and that's just you know I think that's a whole other hand grenade in the sort of china shop to be honest with you. I just wanted to, to jump back. You mentioned working conditions in your answer before. Uh, we obviously saw um, Alex and John sort of go on a, a bit of a mad rant about working conditions and pay um, last week or the week before. It was kind of all over the place. And, uh, it's great, wasn't it? it was yeah. Like a brontosaurus trying to <laughs> Yeah, it was sort of a walk in and try and kick over as much stuff as possible before yeah. they drag you back out through the doors. I just um, wanted... Uh, to hear some of your thoughts on that, obviously, as you know, as a developer yourself, you've you've been through these these smaller games, you've been through that experience. You know, what's what's your perspective on that? Uh, how much do I have to swear on this podcast? Oh, swear as much <laughs> as you <laughs> want, mate. He came across as a idiot, <laughs> uh, and I think the whole world laughed at him. And good. And the sooner people like that are out of business, the better. I've no, there is no question in my mind that there are studios out there. Um, whether they are first party, third party, they don't even necessarily have to be big. Some small studios that have horrendous toxic working cultures and they need to go out of business. Um, and the industry will be a better place when they do. The industry will be a better place when we have fair, decent, diverse, inclusive working conditions for everybody. And anyone that thinks that's not true is an idiot um, and will go out of business. Good. Um, happy people, happy people that have been empowered 
to follow their specialisms and their passions to make better games than people that are trodden down into the ground. There's just no two ways about it. And I think one of the things which came out of the sort of the, the kind of indie explosion around the time that we were there was it did force a sea change in a lot of development conditions where big kind of like grinding studios that kind of worked on the basis that this, this thing which you hear, you know, I've been, oh God, I've talked to people in big studios and they go, oh yeah, crunch is inevitable. And you kind of go, no, crunch is failure. Um, crunch is bad management. Crunch is overselling a project for too small a budget. Crunch is assuming that the people that work for you are a resource to be drained and bled and kicked out. And there's no inevitability about crunch at all. And you make bad games. People can't work effectively beyond a certain number of hours in the day. It's not, and that's not kind of some big kind of like SJW RAM. It's just basic business. If you want someone to program after about six hours of their head buried in the code, if that, then their productivity will drop and they'll start making mistakes and then it'll extend stuff. And the idea that you just keep people in an office for sort of 18 hours a day and they'll somehow make a better game. I don't know on what planet someone decided this was an effective way of, of running a business because it's just it's absolutely bollocks. Um, the best way of making the best possible games is to have reasonable working hours, good working conditions, treat the, the, the development team well and give them an investment in, in the title that they're making. Um, and that's not something which is to do with scale because that's not saying you can only do that if you're a small company because there are very large companies out there that if you speak to people that work for them, we're really invested and empowered and love it. Um, it's just a question of, of basic good or bad management. Um, yeah. Well, yeah, I, I, I it's I, just, I, it's, it's not, it's kind of, it's one of those things where you just think, I don't even know really how it got as much attention as it did because if you take it out of, of the games industry and put it in most other industries, someone coming out and spouting that kind of stuff, and particularly I thought he's, he's someone showed me these recruitment PowerPoints were all about sort of like, you're not hiring engineers, you're hiring engineers' girlfriends, and the best engineer you can buy is a high-functioning autist. I'm like going, I don't know why we're giving it the time of day, to be honest with you, because he's just an idiot. I, uh, I used to work in... Um... QA before I joined, uh, uh, before moving to journalism, and it was an outsourced QA company, so I discovered crunch quite a bit, but not in the ways, obviously not like coders do, but mm. I remember working on another, a relatively big scale game back in 2007, and I had to, well I didn't have to, but um, I got in at 7 in the morning, and then we'd be testing it until 3 in the, uh, in, in the next morning, and um, uh, I would be, but what was amazing is that well, I, would ha I would then go, I need to go to bed. And um, uh, the head of the QA department would be getting calls from the client saying, but I've got coders here or I've got people here wanting to fix these bugs. I'm like, but how can they still be going? I mean, <laughs> I'm, I'm, all I'm doing is playing them and, and tracking bugs. How the hell are these people fixing them still going? I mean, we've been up for 19 hours at this stage. Yeah, um, but like, this is tied in. This is also tied in with the, the kind of, I think the, the biggest issue we've got as a, as an industry still, it's, it's still tied into this kind of like boom and bust model. The reason that they're still going is because those codes are not expected to survive beyond the program, beyond the project. But the project will ship and they'll be fired. And then you're stripped back to leads and core team while you're doing correct prototyping, and then you just hire the next bunch of people in. And there's no, you don't have to worry about the sustainability of that business model if you're going to basically get rid of all the people that you are putting through that pressure. So who cares if they all burn out? They're not your problem anymore because you're going to bin them off anyway. Um, and until we sort of like work out a way of having it, so we're saying, how do you 
retain those people from project to project, which is really, really hard given the whole financial model anyway. Um, you've got an inherent problem of going, you know, what do you do? And it's, you know, believe me, we go through the small team as much as the big team. You know, you, you, you're going to go through periods when you're working up to another project where you're going to be carrying people and that costs money and what do you do about that? Um, and that's kind of like a slightly separate thing, but I think an awful lot of that, of those crunch kind of practices are enabled by the fact that you're working on a, a, a kind of a, an inherent staffing model where you're going to hire a bunch of people to finish the game throw them against the wall as hard as you can on the basis that they're not going to stay with you afterwards. Do you, do you not think as well that the release model of games is a bit odd? I remember talking, it was two E3s ago, I was talking to um, Eves Gillamo, and I said that it's really strange that in games they make a, they're making a game and then the game isn't finished until four weeks before they release it. As in their work, they put a release date in the ground and yeah. they're working until two weeks, four weeks before, then it goes into, you know, um, yeah, uh, sort of certification or this kind of stuff. And I said, in movies, these films that are coming out, like Captain America that's come out this week, that was, um, that was finished months ago. Yeah. Um, and these films are filmed and created, and then all they're doing at the end is just tinkering with little bits, you know, and checking the spelling in the, in the credits and stuff like that. Um, and I always wonder if the games industry moved to the idea of, you know, making a game well in advance of its due date would actually help with, you know, studios not having to rush everything and, and crunch at the end. Yeah, there's some really, really weird attitudes we have as an industry that kind of don't, when you actually take them out of the context of being in the industry, this make no sense whatsoever. Um, and I think this kind of like rush to release is definitely one of them. Um, and it kind of goes on with as well, like the assumption that you'll be late. Um, you kind of start working on a game, it's like, oh, it's coming out in six months. Oh, you mean eight months? No, I mean six months. And Jess always used to say, you know, we sort of like, we're handing, I think we handed Alpha over to Sony like a week early, and they're like, what are you doing? We thought it be at least three weeks late. Well, like, well, no, we said that's when the schedule says it's got to be done by, so that's when it's done by. And I'm like, all right, like, oh, this is weird that you kind of say, this is how long it's going to take to do this, and this is how much money it's going to cost, and those figures are honest. And I think there is, again, it comes from, I think hopefully it is changing, but it comes from the kind of like old school approach to it, where the reason that the way you got a, a publisher gig was you basically lied through your teeth about how much it was going to cost and how long it was going to take to make. And you raced to the bottom and you competed on price only as opposed to on quality. And then all of a sudden, like, it's this massive, God, you know, shock, horror. You can't actually make a three million pound game on one and a half million pounds. Well, who'd have thought that was going to happen? And then inevitably it's late and it's crunched up at the end. And then, you know, you ship products that, that, that aren't really kind of all there. And, and you know, we, we, we've been through this, and we just put a, a PC port out there that didn't have NVIDIA support because it got released before that support was available. You know, and that's something which hurts us as a developer and it hurts our fans. And, I'm, you know, what are you going to do about it? You know, we've got a problem now. We've got, you know, it's, it's no longer our game. It's not our responsibility. It's out there. It requires this sort of, like, patch for SLI. Um, and it shouldn't have gone out on the market before. It shouldn't have had a release date announced before that fix was in. But you, you kind of, you're in this kind of treadmill sometimes, and it's it's really hard to get outside that. Um, but I think that the kind of the root of the problem comes down to this 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 overpromising, this approach to it going, rather than saying it it will take the time it takes to get it to the level of quality that is required in order for this to succeed, which. Every single lesson from the sort of the independent sector has proved this to be more or less correct. The games which like you have people like John Blow going, when's the game done? The game's done when it's done. 
and that's how you make a witness. Um, do you know what I mean? It's, yeah. it's just a, a different kind of approach to it, but I think still having this kind of, well, we really, really want, it doesn't really matter how much your game is going to cost. What matters is that it costs 75% of that. And it's just, it doesn't work. And of course it doesn't work. It's, it's you know, you can't, you know, you, you can't sort of say to someone, well, how fast can you run in 100 metres? And they tell you, and you go, great, okay. Now, what we really need you to do is run the same amount of distance but in 50% of the time. It's just, it doesn't work. Um, and, and that is those kind of attitudinal things which still lurk around the edges in the games industry that create an awful lot of these problems. Because you can't get proper kind of like release cycles and ramp ups and things like that if you're if you're starting off from the fundamentally flawed position of trying to deliver twenty five percent more game than you possibly ever could do on the budget that you've got. Well, yes, I completely agree, um, Dan. I'm, we've taken up a lot of time. I was going to ask you, you know, I'm going to I'm going to end this on a on a more positive note, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, because at the same time, it's really important to say it is an amazing industry to work in. I mean, this yeah. is, you know. I've sort of said all that sort of stuff, but I'm still in it doing it. Yeah, um, it's worth fighting for. It's just that we have to. I think we'd have to have those fights. Mm. Well, I'm looking forward to hearing what you uh, what you've got to say at, um, at Interface on Thursday. With um, uh, which 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 not this Thursday when we're doing recording will be the Thursday when this comes out, uh, where we're um, uh, where you'll be answering indie indie's questions. Um, we'll be getting a load of those. If anyone listening wants to put a question to Dan, chop me an email at cdring at mbmedia.com. And uh, and he will um, Dan he will answer your uh, your concerns your issues um, or or at least give his thoughts on them. Um, Dan, thank you very much. Um, uh, uh, what, what game are you playing at the moment? <laughs> uh, what game am I playing? Mate? I've just started Far Cry Primal. I'm the biggest Far Cry fan. I absolutely love Far Cry, and I've been I've been sucked into Just Cause Three for a couple of months now. Um, and I've just I'm just servicing from Just Cause Three going straight into Far Cry Primal, which so far is great, love it. Yeah, what are you yeah. playing, Matt? Oh God, I, I'm playing Dark Souls Three, so I'm completely <laughs> up the other end of the spectrum. <laughs> I'm just struggling through that. You know, a couple of hours here and there sometimes makes no difference at all. But yesterday, I stormed through two bosses and uh, felt immense satisfaction from it. But uh, yes, but is that not a bit of a tonal shift from you know from just cause to Far Cry? Are you looking at anything in the Far Cry world and going, God, I wish I had a bloody grappling hook for that mammoth. Yeah, it's just really. Yes, and the the, the I, Far Cry was it, it was reinvented me. I got the Bavarian wingsuit and just went. I've got a jetpack. <laughs> <laughs> I've got this is like now. I've got a jetpack that's got to be worth at least forty hours of, of just blowing things up. Um, yeah, it's kind of it's a bit slower, but it's just I don't know. I like it's. Um, I think Primal's got a better tone for me than four. Like I really really like three because it was you know it was appalling. But it kind of knew it was, and it kind of never took itself too seriously. It's like a brilliant B-movie, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, storming around, just shooting stuff. I don't know, some stuff about drugs on the side and this and that. Four kind of didn't know how seriously to take itself, and it kind of went backs and forwards of like, every time it just went there, it's just stupid. Then we go, oh no, hang on a minute, we have to be respectful here. And then it'd be all serious and respectful, and then it'd just go, oh, I can't really keep being serious about this. And Primal just feels like it's a bit more kind of like even. Yeah, um, but I do miss. I'm hoping that whatever the next big one is, it's going to have a bit of a, a bit of the madness of, of three back in it again. I think four's <laughs> biggest misstep for sure was uh, not including any dubstep as you burn 
you know, you know cannabis still, fields. I think one of my favourite moments. Oh, it's bloody yeah, brilliant. The past few years, I go back and play it just for that. Just you get to that sequence, you just go. He's thinking, this is what it's about. <laughs> I'm eight years old, but I'm loving every second of this. I love, I love the idea that the uh, uh, the guy behind, you know, everybody's gone to the rapture is playing two of the biggest mainstream releases in the last, uh, <laughs> <laughs> the last six months. Well, I started off as a, it all started with, you know, I was doing a, a PhD on first-person shooters, and that's where Esther came from in the first place. I'm a massive first-person shooter tracker. I'm really, really, really excited about them, Romero and Carmack working together, and, and that's my thing this week of going, oh, so I've got to get out of here, and, and when I've done this, I'm downloading Romero's new Doom levels to give them a shot. Um, yeah. Huge FPS junkie. Well, looking forward to that. Well, thanks very much, Dan. Um, I'll let you get back to your games. Um, and uh, I look forward to seeing you next week. Brilliant. All right, see you next week. Cheers. Thanks, Dan. Thanks. Cheers, Bye-bye. You can find all your games industry news at mcbuk.com and develop-online.net. This podcast is available from iTunes, Player FM, Pocket Cast and Stitcher. You can also find us on Twitter at mcbonline and at developonline. See you next time.